You're listening to the Bold Face Truth Podcast with Amy Greensmith, episode 463. You can find information on anything referenced in this week's episode at amygreensmith.com slash EP463. There. Check you out listening to self-help pods and working on yourself. Fuck yeah. Quick question. You know those situations where your boss asks you to take on one more thing or your partner asks what's bothering you and you respond with a bold-faced lie? Oops. What would shift for you if you actually started telling the bold-faced truth? Everything. Listen, if you struggle with people-pleasing, perfectionism, and you could use some help with boundaries or speaking up, you are in the right place. Thank God. I am Amy Green-Smith. I'm a certified and credentialed life coach, hypnotherapist, and keynote speaker. Fancy. And I've been working in the personal development space since the mid-2000s. Vintage. Sometimes I'll be solo, other times you'll hear from smart folks offering you easy-to-implement tools to help you tell the bold-faced truth. Yes! Well, hello, pod people. Amy here, and we are going to be jumping into a brand new series. So if you're new to the show, typically what I'll do is three to four episodes around one singular topic. I'll bring in a couple guest experts, and we'll talk about how that particular topic has a bunch of different nuance. So today, we're going to start talking about having a toxic relationship with overachieving or just achieving, period, as well as goal setting. And this is one of those areas that I think gets a bit misconstrued in the personal development space where we become so interested in the attainment of the goal that we really fail to dissect why do we even want this to begin with and where did that desire come from? Is that desire wholly our own Or has it been influenced by society? Are they congruous or are they incongruous? So I knew that if we were going to be talking about this subject, I had to dial up my pal Tara McMullen, and she has recently written a book called What Works, A Comprehensive Framework to Change the Way We Approach Goal Setting, and it's going to be released next month in November. Happy October, by the way. I love the fall season. Oh my gosh, it gets me very, very excited. So I'm going to dial up Tara and see if we can't get a little more insight into how we should even approach goal setting, if we even should, if that is the wrong focus or where we should direct our energy. So with the hopes that we're going to get her on the line, I'm going to tell you a little bit about her. She is a writer, a podcaster, and a producer. And for over the last 13 years, she has studied small business owners, how they live, how they work, what influences them, and what their hopes are for the future. She also hosts a podcast by the same name as her book. It's called What Works. And it's really about navigating 21st century economy while leaving your humanity intact. She is also the co-founder of Yellow House Media, a boutique podcast production company. Her work has been featured pretty much everywhere, Fast Company, The Startup Muse, uh, The Huffington Post, all sorts of awesome stuff. She actually lives in Lancaster County, Pennsylvania with her husband, which is where my mom grew up. And it's a very small sort of Pennsylvania Dutch area um, that nobody really ever knows about. So that's <laughs> kind of fun that that we have that in common. She lives there with her husband, daughter, two lovable cats that just kind of showed up one day and stayed. But her heart is still very much in the mountains of Montana. I can certainly appreciate that. I love the mountains. Love, love, love. So I'm going to give Tara a ring and see what we can find out about goal setting. But before I do, I wanted to let you all know that today and tomorrow, if you are listening the day that this airs, which is October 3rd, 2022, October 3rd and 4th are the last opportunities for you to get your application submitted for my brand new program that is called Worthy. Worthy 
period. <laughs> and if you haven't heard about this, uh, where have you been? No, just kidding. Uh, this program is a radically transformative deep dive group coaching immersion and luxury retreat. So this program is going to span nine months where we are going to be digging into all of the disempowering beliefs that you want to let go of. We're going to be talking about inner child work, parts work, emotional intelligence, belief systems, core value systems, all these different things that we kind of don't know that we need to unpack or we don't know that we need to look at. We just kind of go, why the fuck am I so consumed with perfectionism? Why do I people please nonstop, so much so that I'm staying in relationships and friendships and work environments that are not happy and not conducive for me? And how do I start shifting that? How do I let go of this investment in what everybody else thinks? And usually those sorts of behavioral tactics get to a point in your life where you go, oh, shit, people pleasing isn't keeping me safe anymore. It's not working the way it did maybe as a child or even in high school. I need to start shifting some of this stuff. I know that just simply not liking myself, feeling like I am uniquely broken is influencing every fucking thing in my life. It's the reason why you might not want to start your own business because you are worried that maybe you're not worth it. You don't want to get back into the dating scene again because, oh, I don't know. I just, I need to lose more weight, right? Like we have all these things that we tell ourselves are the reason why we don't go after the things we really want. And what it really boils down to most of the time is a really secure belief in self, understanding that you are enough already. You are worthy already. We're going to be doing every possible thing that we can to start shifting this and so that you genuinely believe that you are enough. I have just a few spots left. It is flying off the uh, virtual shelves, so to speak. But I am still accepting applications today and tomorrow. After that, I do not have plans for this program to be launched again. This is the opportunity. And like I said, we're going to be together for the better part of a year. And then we're going to go on this amazing luxury retreat in Cancun, Mexico. Wait until you see this gorgeous, gorgeous location. Lots of fun sister shit that we get to do in person with one another, kind of celebrating the culmination of all of this growth. And I have seen people create such dramatic differences in their life, severing relationships with folks that no longer serve them, manifesting friendships, work environments, partnerships into their life because they genuinely believe they're worthy of it. And I've seen people quit smoking. I've seen people start companies. I've seen people leave marriages, man, you know, all the different things that we want to have the courage to do, but we wonder if we really are worth it. And spoiler alert, you are. Let's just get you to that point where you genuinely believe it. So, Go to amygreensmith.com slash worthy. You'll see the official invitation and then your opportunity to submit an application. Even the application alone could be a very healing, introspective, kind of like journal exercise for you. So I highly encourage you to do that just, just for that alone, for your own personal growth alone. And then we will take it from there. We'll jump on a call and just iron everything out and make sure you feel super comfortable with everything. But your first item of business is to go view the official invite that will have all of the specifics, all of the dates and times, the entire curriculum, what our retreat center is looking like, all of the possible things that you would need to know about it, you'll find in that invitation and then you'll see the opportunity to apply. Again, amygreensmith.com slash worthy. And that application should, shouldn't take you much longer than five minutes or so. So it's not like you have to submit a dissertation or some shit. <laughs> All right. So let's give Tara a call and see what she has to say about toxic goal setting and achievement. Hi, this is Tara. Tara. Hey, what's up? It's Amy. How are you, friend? Hey, Amy. I'm great. Thanks for calling. Yeah. So 
Uh, I know that you've been promoting this book about relationship to toxic goal setting. And I was like, holy shit, well, I've got to call her up and see if I can pick your brain, even though I hate that term. Uh, <laughs> that's such a dumb term. Uh, but see if you can share some insights with our audience. Do you happen to have, I don't know, spare handful of minutes to chat? Absolutely. I always have time to talk about this stuff. Oh, good, 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 good. Um, so can you give everybody just a Cliff's Notes version of your journey sort of through this evolution and really deconstruction of relationship to goal setting? Because that's a huge demographic of folks who listen to the show. And there's this notion of like, achieve, 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 then I must be valuable. Uh, so talk to us about your personal journey with that and starting to shift this? Yeah. So as you said, like so many people, um, I started off life and continued life as an overachiever. Um, and I think now we're starting to more commonly like own the fact that it's an anxious overachiever, right? It's that I was always questioning whether things were good enough, whether I was good enough. And I knew that as long as I kept getting A's or I kept moving up in my musical studies or, you know, whatever accolades I could achieve throughout school, uh, at home, in sports, in music, that those were ways of, of proving to myself and hopefully proving to others that it's okay. I belong here. Don't worry about it. <laughs> right? right. And, um, that really, Man, it, it it was. I'm turning forty uh, next month. We're recording in August. I turned forty on September 10th, and I would say that I lived the first thirty five ish years of my life really focused on whatever the next achievement was going to be, and if that achievement wasn't coming, starting to believe that. I was not good enough, that I was never going to make it, that things were always going to be hard, that people would leave me, disown me, just desert me. And I think that, you know, there's there's a lot of that that gets taught to us in school. There's a lot of that that gets taught to us at home. Mm -hmm. um, and there is a huge amount of just cultural stuff in the ether sure. that gives us that message as well. And, and, you know, we, we learn to think of ourselves to, to understand our identities through the lens of the marketplace on the market. Our identities are often mediated through our achievements. And mine very much was to the point where I did not know who I was if I wasn't achieving things. Right. right? Sure. Um, and so about five years ago, I started to realize that this was not working for me, that the constant ups and downs of achieving or failing or just, you know, doing fine for an extended period of time was not, uh, it wasn't healthy. It wasn't sustainable. And, you know, if I think of the next 35 years of my life, um, I didn't want to keep living like that. And so I started to to kind of dig into where all of these stories were, why I believed the things that I believed. And as you know, you use the word deconstruction, and, and that's exactly what it was. For me, it was a deconstruction of all of these different layers of stories, of narrative, of ethos, beliefs um, that I had inherited either from our culture from the marketplace, from school, from family, and really figuring out how those things were impacting my behavior, my sense of identity, my sense of satisfaction. And in understanding all of those things, then saying, okay, well, if, if I get down to something that resembles like what I actually believe and how I actually want to show up in the world, how can I reconstruct that some sort of infrastructure, some sort of system for my life that's going to make, that's going to give me that substance that I need to kind of build off of. Yeah. 
um, but that isn't going to just bring me back into that loop of achieve, achieve, achieve. So that's the Cliff Notes version of it. I'm happy to go into any part of that that you want me to go further into. This is brilliant because I the first thing I started thinking about was how oftentimes when I'm working with with a client or student who does identify as very high achieving and has usually it's sort of a, a behavioral tactic throughout your entire life. It's not like mm-hmm. you just all of a sudden become an overachiever. No. That's not really how it works. Uh, but I notice how they want to overachieve and quote win at personal development as well. Mm-hmm. And I'm always saying like, hey, this is not academia. You don't get better points if you complete more worksheets in my program. You know, it's about what who you're actually being. And that's what I'm kind of seeing as sort of a, a thesis throughout the entirety of your your book is this is more about living and being um, in alignment with your values and what matters to you instead of like dropping down this scroll of like, look what I can do. Look at everything that I've done. I was also thinking about sort of the the myriad of different ways that we're influenced. The first okay. thing I was thinking of was, okay, well, this is this is white supremacy. This mm-hmm. is patriarchy, right? Mm-hmm. Where we say, the masculine energy is produce, 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 produce. You're only valuable if you produce. This is capitalism mm-hmm. that is that we only value you when you're producing. And, and then I started thinking about where does that intersect with religion and families of origin and, you know, marginalized identities. So I'm curious for you. I mean, you're like, duh, that's what the book is about. <laughs> That's why I wrote the whole book. You're going to have to just read the book. Um, But for you, I'm super curious specifically about family of origin and Mm. dynamics with siblings or no siblings, or was there any sort of familial influence of that message of you're only valuable when you're attaining achievement? Yes. So for me, that message wasn't so much overt or explicit, but it was very obvious that just under the surface, for me as a child, I knew that achieving made things better. So I come from a home of divorced parents, um, as so many people do, although um, they split up around 92. And at the time I was the first person in sort of my greater friend group whose parents okay. split up. Um, and I definitely got, there were definitely different messages that sort of bolstered that thesis around if I achieve, I'll be okay. Um, I would say one of the things that I think about often still is my dad. Um, you know, my dad, I love him. And also like he has this very, uh, he has a way of talking about the people he knows that makes it clear that he is putting himself in that sort of social hierarchy, the social order. Um, And so that certainly had an influence on me. Um, Another part for him was that, you know, his the easiest way for him to relate to me was through sports still is. And it's great. Like I love the kind of sports relationship that I have with my dad. That's, that's awesome. And part of sports for us anyway, was competing and winning. Right. Right. I did not grow up in a household or in a, a sort of family culture where the goal was just to do your best or just to participate. The goal was to win. (laughs) And I like winning. And I'm very competitive. And um, I don't believe that that's some sort of essential part of me. I think it's an authentic part of me. I don't I don't believe in that sort of identity essentialism, but um, it's also heavily influenced by the family culture that I grew up in. on the on the other side of that, um, on where I where I lived ninety nine percent of the time was with my mom. And my mom is, She's she has this like go getter entrepreneurial personality, but in a really 
in a way where it's only like, I'm going to do what it takes to survive kind of Mm. way. Like she's tenacious as a survivor, not necessarily tenacious as an achiever, if that makes sense. Yes. Um, And so part of, I think the, the way I engaged with that was um, if I achieved, if I wasn't something she had to worry about in terms of survival or, or making it to the next day or making it to the next year, then that was better. Like she had enough stuff to worry about. She Mm -hmm. didn't need to worry about me. And so achieving was sort of like a way that I could be, I could be the, the one that was going to make it. I could be the one that was going to, you know, she didn't have to worry about me. It was just, Tara's going to be fine because yeah. of X, Y, and Z thing that she's done or, or is going to do. Um, and yeah, and that, I mean, she didn't put that on me at all, right. but that was how I responded to sort of that part of our family culture and that relationship that I had with my mom. And in, in many ways, absolutely still do. Yeah. <laughs> you know, um, both my husband and I have that sort of dynamic with our moms where it's like, yeah, we're the ones that have it together. We're the ones that are doing pretty good in life and, you know, worry about everybody else. You don't need to worry about us. So achievement really fit into that as well. That's, that's so curious. I'm thinking about my two younger siblings and how we grew up with the exact same parents, with the exact same values and the exact same teaching methodologies. And we, all three of us interpreted them very, very differently. Mm -hmm. And so for me, the sort of the portal into achievement was around being the good girl growing up with such extreme dogma in the form of religion. Mm -hmm. And so, and I know that there's a lot of that that I see too with overachieving is, okay, do you like me now? Am I okay now? Am I, Mm -hmm. uh, can you approve of me now? And a way to do that is through achievement or what I see consistently is, is the strive for perfection. Mm -hmm. Like, oh my gosh, it has to be flawless. It has to be flawless, which of course we know is, is not attainable. One of the things that I'm super curious about in your process, because I have had the fortune to know you over the last, you know, decade. And I do remember a very distinct time when, when you were like, I teach business. I don't teach, I don't teach thought work. I don't mindset. No, I'm not a life coach. Get out of here. And justly so there are, there's lots of quackery going on. So I, I understand. Um, And now you've morphed into, you know, we do need to give some credence to mindset work and critical thinking skills. Mm-hmm. Um, and one of the things that I'm always fascinated by is the intersection between self-help or personal growth, whatever you would call it, that framework and uh, social justice work, inequities mm-hmm. that we see and, you know, toxic positivity and and all of these sorts of things, giving up one big brushstroke saying this applies to everybody's lived experience when we know that that's not the case. So talk to me a little bit about how you have deconstructed or reconstructed your view of the self-help community as it relates to this pull to achieve. Yeah. How long do you have? No. Um, (laughs) So, yeah, absolutely. To my positioning, you know, five plus years ago was very much around like, when you come into my orbit, we are here to do business. And it wasn't that I didn't believe that mindset work was important and that personal growth was important. It was that that's not what I know about. (laughs) I know about this business stuff over here, right? right? And so... You know, I would say at that time, uh, let's say pre-five years ago, I was often, when I consumed self-help, when I consumed personal growth uh, education work, um, I was all, I was totally into it. And also it seemed like a means to an end, right? If the end is achievement, self-help 
was the means to achievement. And so it was very uh, instrumentalized for me. Uh, And it had been since I think the very first time I was ever exposed to self-help, which was um, as I think a junior in college when I did a very brief stint in Mary Kay. And it was the first time I'd ever heard, you know, a motivational speaker. It was the first time I'd ever heard uh, tapes of people coaching you through something, right? And I loved it. And it was very much within this framework of if you do these things you will achieve, you'll succeed, you'll rise up in the ranks. And so that was, that was a hundred percent the framework that I brought to my understanding of self-help for the vast majority of my adult life. Um, Then at that point, I, at that point where I started to question my relationship with goals It was also a questioning of my relationship with my understanding of personal growth. Mm. And I think uh, first and foremost, when I started to question that relationship, it it was a recognition that despite having value, very kind of collectivist um, community oriented values all my life. You know, I've, I've always been <laughs> a, a hippie. My aunt called me a pinko commie when I was like 11 years old. Um, <laughs> I don't talk to her anymore. Um, <laughs> but, uh, you know, so I'm, I've always kind of held those positions, but I didn't realize how much those positions had been co-opted mm-hmm. by, um, this sort of individualist streak that runs so deep in the self-help and personal growth world. And so as I started to deconstruct my relationship around achievement and goal setting, it was also recognizing how far away from uh, what I thought I was doing, I actually was, and how far into that world of this is about me, this is about my success, everyone else be damned. Um, And so Originally, I would say the first few years, it was a lot of um, political relearning. And I don't mean political, like as in partisan, but political as in like power analysis. Who has the power in different relationships? Who has the power to speak through a self-help book? What kind of power structure are they upholding through this idea? And just starting to notice that everywhere. And I think initially when you start to notice that, it is like such a huge turnoff. And you're just like, oh, God, I can never engage with this subject matter again, right? And then as I think my understanding and my facility with these ideas has improved, um, I started to see personal growth as a way like I can grow personally, but that doesn't mean growing away from, it means growing toward, right? So a lot of self-help is positioned in terms of the existing neoliberal social order, right? So, uh, or, you know, the white supremacy social order. So I uh, move up the ladder. I become better than others by earning more money, being whiter, being more masculine, all all of these things that our culture kind of places, not kind of, does Does. place above Mm -hmm. other things. Um, That is about uh, growing away from the people who self-help might deem as losers or those, you know, the, the people who don't work hard enough, the people who don't hustle, right? We get all of those messages. And so that that is a personal growth away from. Whereas there's a whole other body of work, sometimes labeled self-help, but often labeled sociology, personal essays, um, cultural studies, uh, meditation, all, you know, all of these sort of self-help adjacent fields where there is an effort toward personal growth toward the community, right? How am I working on myself and what am I exploring and practicing with myself that brings me into greater relationship with the world? And so for me, when I think now about what I want to get out of self-help and where I want my own body of work to sit, 
I think about it in terms of that personal growth toward. So is it working on yourself? Yes. Is that a mostly individual pursuit? Sure. And it can be a connective pursuit as much uh, instead of a moving away from pursuit. This is what I'm hearing is if personal growth is telling you you're broken and we need to fix you and get you over here, then we're not doing anything dissimilar to corporate structures, to a lot of religion. You're, you know, a lot of religion. I can't help but layer on a lot of my religious trauma <laughs> to damn near everything. <laughs> I mean, religion is my background. So please, right. we could talk theology all day. <laughs> and so I can't help but go, oh, okay. I was raised to believe that I was in need of saving that I was Uh so broken that I needed saving. And then you see uh, a wealth of, um, you know, to use the term deconstruction, folks who are deconstructing their religious faiths, recognizing no wonder I believe I'm not enough or that I'm not worthy. I grew up with a very specific dogma that influenced that and that also influenced American society. So (laughs) it's, it's, it's everywhere. Um, which is why I'm talking to my therapist tonight about (laughs) religious (laughs) trauma (laughs) because it's, it's with me nonstop. Um, but I, but that's one of the things that I think is so important about reckoning with authority in any kind of way, whether you are investing in a business mentor or it is a spiritual leader or it is somebody in the personal growth uh, atmosphere. I think to me, it's about if that person is pushing you closer to you, mm-hmm. that's that's what it's supposed to be about is turning toward myself and who I want to be in this community and not necessarily towards a specific ideology or you have to believe this or you know that you are uniquely broken is sort of the the phrase that I tend to use because that's so I tell people all the time, and I know you've talked about this in your book too, being kind of enraptured by by the the MLM, you know, the, mm-hmm. the the Mary Kay situation. It's like, which when you said the red blazer, I was like, I bet it's a fucking pink blazer. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm glad I'm glad you outed yourself on, yeah. on the show. Um, but I always tell them, like, listen, char- charisma sells. That's why MLMs work. That's why religion works. That's why businesses work. So recognize that that strong frame, even from myself, when I share things emphatically and dramatically, I want you to internally say, that's true for Amy. Is that true for me? Because I'm not interested in making more Amy's. I'm interested in more people being aligned with who they genuinely want to be in this world. We have enough other bullshit telling us who we're supposed to be and what we're supposed to want. I wanted to take a quick moment to thank Let's Get Checked for sponsoring this podcast. Let's Get Checked makes professional health testing super easy by letting you get tested without having to visit a healthcare provider. Well, testing for what you might ask? Well, they have a huge array of at-home testing kits, including women's health, men's health, sexual health, and wellness kits. In fact, I did two of the women's hormone testing kits, and it could not have been easier. And then when I received the results, I was able to simply forward them onto my naturopath to get her thoughts. All you do is you simply choose your test online. It will be delivered to you in discreet packaging with next day delivery. And then once your sample arrives in the lab, confidential results will be available from your secure online account within two to five days. Once your results are available, they'll be reviewed by a physician and then a nurse will contact you for a consultation over the phone. And in some cases, a physician will be able to provide prescriptions to the pharmacy of your choosing. Let's Get Checked laboratories are CLIA approved and CAP accredited, which are the highest ranking levels of accreditation. Let's Get Checked lets you avoid uncomfortable office visits by providing you with access to home testing and professional medical consultations without 
ever leaving your home. It has never been this simple to get tested. So get this. If you want to try a test from Let's Get Checked, all you got to do is go to trylgc.com slash bold truth to save a whopping 30% on your first test kit. 30%. Just use the code bold truth, all one word at checkout. That's bold truth to save 30% on your first test kit. So I want to pivot and talk a little bit about this goal thing because mm-hmm. it, in its entirety, I'm on board. At the granular level, when I think, oh shit, I'm going to have to give up my giant G goals as as how you, or big G goals. Yeah. I'd love for you to explain a little bit more of what that is and then the theory behind or what you found really in your research of why it's healthy to let go of those. And then we can dovetail into how the fuck do I let go of that if that's what has been the sense of identity? Because I I can hear people thinking, wait, I'm not going to have big goals. Then what is it all about? What is it for? (laughs) I mean, yes. Welcome to me five years ago. (laughs) Like realizing, oh, this is a problem. And then also who am I without big goals? I like literally do not have a fucking clue. Yes. Um. So yes. Okay. So the premise of the book is around the idea of giving up goal setting and replacing it with a an infrastructure for your life that is more conducive to satisfaction, to personal exploration, to um, a more sustainable way of planning out what you want to do in this world. Mm-hmm. Um, and whatever that might want to look like for yeah. you. And I'm not here to take anybody's goals away, right? Right. Phew. So yes, everybody, big sigh of relief. I'm not taking your goals away. I like to think of the the kind of the system that I lay out in the book as a way of reframing however you want to think about goals. And I do lay out like a here's what I've replaced uh goals big g goals with um but it's not necessarily a system that's there to replace all the other systems you have it's a thought process it's a critical thinking system that allows you to engage with whatever works for you in a way that is also aligned with where you actually want to go what you actually want who you really are what your values actually are so all that said, let me back up. Big G goals versus little G goals. So um, one of the, or the pioneer of goal setting theory is a dude named Edwin Locke. And we're talking way back in the 60s now, um, the 1960s. And he looked at how goals operate in our lives sort of in general, and then also sort of through a, a business management lens. And he defined goals simply as desired end states and for, or desired future states, sorry. And I totally dig that definition of a goal. And I would call that, that's sort of like the umbrella that I would use for little G goals. We have goals all the time. He talked about um, sort of like Uh, alleviating hunger, not in like a world peace sort of way, but in literally like making yourself a sandwich for lunch. Like the goal is to not be hungry. He was looking at goals sort of as the identification of where we wanted to end up and then sort of how as humans, as animals, we structure our behavior to make those future desired states reality. When I talk about big G goals, on the other hand, I'm talking about the goals that are full of shoulds and supposed tos. So the shoulds and supposed to big G goals are things like build a six-figure business, build a seven-figure business, write a book, get the promotion, get married, have a baby. Yes, all of those things, right? And there is nothing wrong with any of those individual things. It's how we engage with them as big G goals that become a problem. So building a seven-figure business, 
awesome. I'm here for it. Let's do it. Let's figure it out. And also, why is it that you want to build this business? Is it to create great jobs? Is it to um, make yourself a lot of money? Is it to put an idea out into the world in a really big way? Those fundamental questions, I think that we sort of tip our hats to in like traditional goal setting advice, but it becomes those whys, no matter how much we say it's the why that matters. Right. That's not how we actually structure our behavior. We structure our behavior in terms of the specific goal. And in then doing so, it's very easy to set aside that why and start to appropriate these behaviors that don't line up with our why and that don't reinforce the identity that we're trying to grow into that we want to become. And so we become instruments of that goal rather than the goal being an instrument for us to use in terms of growth. Mm. So that's, that's sort of like the big G goal piece. On the flip side, If you focus on why you want to build that thing, so let's say seven-figure business sounds really good. You like the idea of that. You like the idea of paying yourself well. You like the idea of paying other people well, the idea of spreading your message like that. What happens when we focus on practices, habits, routines, systems that focus on the why as opposed to Mm. the desired future state, right? So if I want to create jobs, what what does that mean for the way I want to build out my products and services? What does that say about the way that I want to invest my money? And how then can I incorporate that into my daily life? If I want to have really strong relationships in my life. It doesn't necessarily mean that I have to go and, you know, get on match.com and go find a husband, right? right? It means that I have a practice of cultivating deep intimacy in whatever relationships I have, right? And so that's kind of that's the fundamental piece that I'm trying to change up for people with the book is instead of looking at what behaviors linearly get me from here to big G goal? What are the little G goals? What are the motivating factors? What's the why? What's the purpose? What are the values that I can actually build into my daily actions, my daily behaviors, and fully commit to those pieces um, so that it's not it's not something that I'm putting off into the future. It's something that I am doing right now. And Does that embodying. make sense? Yeah, and embodying yeah. right now. Yeah, what I'm what I'm thinking of is I see this a lot in in my work where if women, those who you know who identify as cishet women, are in their 30s, 40s, or 50s, and they're single, mm-hmm. the pressure is around. It, that should of I need to be partnered to be valuable, right? Mm-hmm. Because of all these social constructs that mm-hmm. say that you are your women are valuable based off of being a commodity to men. And if you don't subscribe to that, then there's something wrong with you or you're again uniquely damaged. The thing that I find difficult to parse out, and I'm curious what your perspective is on this, Mm -hmm. is the difference between, or I should say not the difference between, what happens when there is a collapse of both desires? There's a desire to accomplish the goal for the society at large. Like the society says, we want you to be married. We want people Mm -hmm. to be coupled. But then you also have a desire to genuinely share your life with somebody and you genuinely want that connection and that uh, camaraderie or whatever. I see that there are some folks who we get totally wrapped up through no fault of our own in bullshit narratives like Disney, you know, (laughs) giving up, literally giving up part of yourself, like your voice or, (laughs) you know, your hair or whatever in order to attract love, right? So 
I can understand how there are a lot of women out there who genuinely do want that and who are also informed by society saying you need to want that. And that that's one area that I think like, how do you discern if I'm listening to the right why? My why or society's why? And is there room for crossover? So yes, there is absolutely room for crossover. Um, I talked to Mara Glatzel. Do you know Mara? Yeah. Yeah. I've had her okay. on the show. Yeah. I talked to Mara Glatzel last year on my show. And one of the things that she brought up um, in our conversation was that at some point she she had to reckon with uh, whether she was ambitious because she was ambitious or whether she was ambitious because capitalism made her want to be ambitious. Right. right? And I was That's like, right. yes, that a hundred percent. And she came to the the conclusion that at least at that point in time, I'm ambitious because I'm ambitious. Like I want these things because I want them. Mm -hmm. And so, yes, there's can absolutely be crossover between what you genuinely want for yourself and your life and um, what society says you should or you're supposed to want. Now, marriage is a really interesting one. It's such a great example because it's not only sort of a cultural story, but it's an economic story, right? Mm -hmm. And so we have to ask ourselves, why does culture want us to be married, at least in the United States, right? It's the emphasis toward, quote unquote, family, right? And when it when we say family, what we mean is reproducing workers. We mean... Uh, disenfranchising LGBTQ people. Mm -hmm. We mean not allowing, yes, and disabled people. Like this, the it runs the gamut, right? Everyone is excluded from this vision of family that's not cis het, yes. um, right? And and white for the most part, right? right. And it, like we can start thinking about all the stories around marriage and race as well, and they are deep. So there's that component of it. There's that sort of um, conservative political component of why we believe we're supposed to get married. There's an actual financial component to it. Anyone who's gotten married after, you know, maybe paying taxes as a single person versus paying taxes as a married person. Mm -hmm. Look, you want to be paying taxes as a married person. Like, I just, I can't put it any other way. Right. The financial benefits of getting married are immense. We're not thinking about that when we're getting on Match.com and putting right. our profile up there going to the bar, or the bookstore, or the coffee shop and, and looking for a potential date, right? We're not thinking about those things, but it's, it is foundational to our understanding of what marriage is about. Um, if you're a woman, it's also about protection it's, uh, economically and physically. Mm -hmm. It's about, you know, having the, the right structure for having children, mm -hmm. um, all of these things, right? That doesn't mean that we may not genuinely want to share our lives with someone. Just like you said, to me, the most important part is actually just identifying the stories, the shoulds and supposed tos that we live within. I don't necessarily have a, a great way for figuring out, discerning what you want versus what society wants for you. But when you can at least say, this is what society wants for me. And here's why, and here's who it benefits, because it's not that it benefits you most of the time. <laughs> then I can say, okay, those are still things that I want. This right. is still a structure that's important to me, an institution that I want to be a part of. Cool. But I think so often those stories are just so silent. They're so, they're so ubiquitous that yeah. we don't we are not conscious of them that simply by raising our consciousness around those stories and the the power dynamics at play the financial and economic dynamics at play with all of the different shoulds and supposed tos in our lives then we can actually have a sort of a pros and cons of you know whether this is something we want or not something we want but otherwise we're kind of flying out there without a map, without any kind of radar. And so just knowing the terrain of the the cultural stories that we have been told and that have become just part of how we understand the world 
knowing that terrain gives us a way to navigate it. But without that map, we're not getting anywhere fast, for sure. I keep thinking it's almost like we're giving our stamp of informed consent. Yeah, on, on that's our a great goals, way to put it. Right? Mm-hmm. It's like, I see your bullshit out there, society. And I actually approve. <laughs> I do want to get married. <laughs> but I was I was thinking how there's many ways in which if we don't do this unpacking or be really scrupulous about looking at the origins and impetus behind things, is we get gaslit into like a perfect example is we think it's fucking romantic for our partner to ask our father for permission for our hand in marriage. And then we do it again at the ceremony. You know, like, could we feel any more like property or like we don't have agency to our own decisions, but we're gaslit into thinking it's so beautiful and so touching and so romantic And while you're at it, wear a white dress to exemplify your purity. Anyway, (laughs) (laughs) it worked up. But one thing that I wanted to ask you about, there's a quote that you have in your book that says, critical thinking has created a more satisfying life for me than positive thinking ever could. Mm -hmm. Tell me everything. <laughs> yes. Um, okay. So one of the things that I keep kind of circling around but haven't said explicitly as we've been talking is that capitalism has a vested interest in keeping us unsatisfied, right? So the whole premise of mm. consumer capitalism is that we feel needs that are not necessarily needs. We feel desires that aren't necessarily our desires. We feel broken in ways in which we are not broken so that we will go and buy solutions to those things, right? And that could be as simple as like a pack of gum or as massive as a home or a business or a college degree, right? Like we're talking orders of magnitude of of vastness um, in all of the ways in which we think about ourselves as broken, uh, think of ourselves as unsatisfied. And it's all, it, it is built into our culture. It is built into our culture that we have this perception of ourselves as, or or perception of life as just always not quite good enough, always not mm-hmm. quite satisfying. I saw a tweet this morning from a dude with a PhD who the tweet And I don't think it was satirical. It seemed genuine. The tweet was something to the effect of, why is it that all people so seem to never quite be satisfied? Blah, 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 blah. First off, there are lots of people in this world who are satisfied Mm -hmm. and who do not have smartphones or, you know, and I'm in no way wanting to glorify, uh, you know, a, a life that is difficult in very, very many ways, right? And the answer to his question is, what, what's, what is it with people that we're never quite satisfied? It's not a what is it with people. It's what is it with the system? What right. is it with the, with the political economy that we live in? That's where the problem is, right? And so, The reason that critical thinking is a key to satisfaction for me is because applying a a framework of of kind of figuring out what is an ad really saying to me? Mm -hmm. What is this display at a store actually trying to communicate? What is the sort of agenda behind this book that I'm reading or this podcast that I'm listening to or this television show that I'm watching? Even if there's not a a, a clear political agenda. There is almost always a political narrative to the media that we consume mm-hmm. um, and certainly to the advertising that we consume. And so if I can bring a critical thinking perspective to that and, and ask again, who in whose best interest is it that I want this pro- product? In whose best interest 
Is it that I think I'm broken in this way? In whose best interest is it that I set this goal? If I can bring that critical thinking lens to the kind of media environment that I that I swim in, that we all swim in, then I can better identify when I do actually want to buy something because buying things is fun, mm-hmm. right? And when I'm just being sold something I don't need and being told something about myself that's not true, mm-hmm. right? On the flip side of that, the positive thinking piece is positive thinking for having the word positive in it is very negative. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and when I when I say positive thinking here, I really mean capital P, capital T, positive thinking, not just thinking positively. Thinking positively is great. Um, I try to be optimistic. I fail at it quite often, but you know, I try. Um, but positive thinking, positive psychology, these things um, have within them a values structure that is, again, designed to keep us reaching for the next thing. Positive thinking is all about being becoming more successful about getting whatever you want in life. It sounds good, but the implication there is that you don't have everything you want in life, that you're not good enough the way that you are, that if you're not winning in this precise way, then you're a loser. And to me, the sort of positive thinking with a capital P and a capital T circumvents, subverts our ability to think critically about who we want to become, what we want to buy, what we want out of life, and inserts into that place a list of shoulds and supposed tos that's designed to give us a very narrow definition of what success and fulfillment looks like. Yes. Yes. Yeah, I I oftentimes will encourage folks to think or use even self-talk statements that are empowering, which mm-hmm. is different per individual versus something that's just straight positive. So, for example, instead of if you're feeling really down or really upset or overwhelmed, the goal is not to once again gaslight yourself and say everything's amazing. I feel fantastic. The empowering thing to say to yourself in that moment is you are allowed to feel what you feel, Mm -hmm. right? It's not overly woo-woo and positive, but it is empowering. And I would also argue that thinking critically is incredibly empowering too, because you're able to space out okay, what is the agenda? Because everything is appealing to the emotional centers of the brain, right? Because we know we make so much more decision decisions based off of emotions, even though we like to demonize emotions in our society. We make all our decisions that way, right? And so I think this is really interesting to go, what would it look like if instead of taking the message at face value of, oh, you need to be thinner or you need to have bigger boobs or you need to be whiter or you need to be whatever, instead of looking at that and taking the message on, looking at the apparatus through which it is sharing information and going, what are all the cogs and wheels in here Uh that have resulted in this very emotional messaging that are actually trying to complete another goal entirely. That's super helpful. I really, as someone who loves sort of the bridge between, you know, woo-woo stuff and the scientific realm, I find that radically empowering to just go, no, let's just think critically about this. The problem that happens, I think, is is belief systems and the subconscious running a majority of the mind, but we don't have to get into (laughs) that. <laughs> yeah, I mean, to that point, it's a process, right? And, you know, I'm five years into this process, having spent a lot of time on it in terms of my own body of work, like literally the job that I have, right? Um, and so I have a lot of facility with looking at an ad and being able to tell you, well, there's this message, this message, this message, and this message there that isn't actually what they're saying in the ad at all. I've feel pretty confident in that now. I did not five years ago, right? It starts with understanding and 
being able to recognize maybe one system or one belief that to that point had been subconscious, but now is at the surface. The more you play with that, the more you practice that, the easier it will get. And you can add new systems. Um, and guess what? You'll start to notice things new. Like there's never yeah. an end point, right? Like this is not my end point. In fact, there's there's research that I was going to tell you about response to this that is not in the book. So like, for instance, Adorno, who was a Marxist uh, kind of cultural theorist, has this concept of the culture industry. And his argument is that the media that is produced, film, books, uh, TV especially, radio especially, at least at that time, is designed to pacify us, right? It's designed to not encourage us to use our critical thinking skills. And if you look at the media, I mean, that was in the 70s, I think. Um, if you look at now what the media landscape is i mean it's all around us and it is it's part and parcel with these giant franchise media systems right why is there always another star wars coming out why is there more marvel universe movies it's because that stuff is familiar and yes it's fun and it like again not taking it away from anybody i enjoy the hell out of a great franchise too but it doesn't make us think about a new world a new set of characters, a new system of beliefs. We just stay in the same pattern. Mm. And then the other piece was from a media theorist named uh, Marshall McLuhan. And he's the guy who coined the term, the medium is the message. And he studied television advertising in the 80s. One of the things that he kind of talked about, kind of theorized around, was that TV advertising is not actually there to sell you on a specific message. It's there to create this sort of overwhelming, yeah, emotional, erotic um sense of need, of desire. And then the specific ad just sort of inserts itself for a moment within that, and mm. then it goes away. And then the next ad comes and inserts itself into that desire. Critical thinking is so not something that we are encouraged to do on a regular basis. Mm -hmm. And I really believe, I really, really, really believe that we would be much happier, much more, much more satisfied if we used our critical thinking skills more, if we nurtured our critical thinking yeah. skills. And I think that's that right there is is a poignant remark because there are many situations where critical thinking is almost a privilege and a luxury, mm -hmm. you know, where because of the extreme system that you live in. To really think about anything with that level of discernment, it's like, what are you even doing? Right? Like, what, <laughs> yeah. Really? What? Yeah. This has been so fascinating and truly such an enjoyable conversation, Tara. I really, I can't thank you enough for being here with me, but but also just for really getting this work into the world. I think it's going to shake things up. And I think it's incredibly needed and timely, especially for women where we're in this heightened level of autoimmune disease and adrenal fatigue and all of these cycles of stress and burnout that we're getting into because we have to do all the things, right? And we should, 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 should. So I'm just, I'm grateful for this work. And I really want to encourage everybody go out and pre-sell uh, the book, right? Like, didn't you say mm -hmm. it's, it's on pre available for pre-order right now? Yes, it okay, is. So yeah, you them. can find it anywhere books are sold. Okay. That's easy. That's super excellent. And it's called What Works, right? Yes. Just like the podcast. Just like the podcast. That's fantastic. Tara has an awesome podcast as well. So if you want to go nerd out on some seriously insightful wisdom for business folks, get get your ass over there. I think that's that's everything I wanted to run by you. Thank you for taking the time to chat. Absolutely. It was my pleasure. I love all of your questions and I, I really appreciate your excitement at engaging with the nerdiness, as you put it. <laughs> it I, makes me very happy. 
<laughs> I think we'll have a lot of folks tuning in who like that too. For all intents and purposes, I think everybody really appreciates like the science and the studies and what has been found about human behavior and how we're motivated and and all of those things. So um yeah, I'm I'm selfishly so excited that I have this book already. Um <laughs> so I can read it more thoroughly, but everybody please go pre pre-order the book. Uh, we'll put all the links in the show notes, of course. And I will say, see you later, my friend. Bye-bye. Take care. Well, there you have it. I'm hoping that that was a delicious conversation for you to listen in on. I know I took away a lot of really great nuggets there, especially this concept kind of around informed consent and critical thinking and how I can dissect what I'm feeling based off of who might benefit from me feeling like shit about myself. <laughs> and uh, looking at that through a more critical thinking lens feels so much more liberating to me. I would love to hear what your biggest takeaway is. I hang out the most over on Insta. You can find me under the handle Hey Amy Green Smith and just find the meme for this episode and let me know what your biggest takeaway was. I would love to hear that from you. So obviously today we started our new series on uh, goal achievement and sort of a toxic relationship to approval and achievement. Next week, I'm going to come at you with a solo episode where we'll be digging into this even further. And please do not forget that today and tomorrow are the last opportunities, last call to get your application in for Worthy if you are interested. And I think you are. I think you are. <laughs> if you're listening to this show and you give a shit about being a better person and you want to grow and actually really genuinely like yourself, let's get you there. So hit the link in my show notes or go to amygreensmith.com slash worthy. And that is it for today. I will see you around these parts next week. And please remember you are enough. Your voice matters. So go out there and speak the bold faced truth. Okay, wait, 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 just one more thing. So these podcasts, it turns out, don't actually rate and review themselves. So I would be over the moon if you would leave a review, rate the show, subscribe, and tell anyone you know who needs to start speaking the fuck up for themselves. And if you do, I will give you a mini pig. Just kidding, but I will be so very incredibly grateful. Okay, thank you, bye.